Prologue. I've thought about my junior year of college so often, I'd created a Cliff Notes version of it in my head. As I thought about this part of my journey, I had a clear outline in my mind for how I'd tell it. Then I opened my journals and read what I'd actually written during this period. My memory was a sterilized, palatable version of actual events. I had forgotten how much I was still vacillating at the time regarding my sexual orientation. One day I was clear about being gay, and the next I denied it. I read how I was still feigning interest in girls to try and fit in, all while exploring a physical relationship with Michael, coming out to a few people, and wanting desperately to find my authentic self. It was uncomfortable looking back at the 20-year-old me. It was also an excellent reminder that finding your authentic self is an uncomfortable process, whether it's finding your way out of an established pattern of bad behavior or coming to terms with the deep truth about yourself. Such a journey is very much a process, and a lifelong one at that. To this day, in any number of situations, I choose whether or not to come out, as a gay man or as a survivor, at work, in medical settings, in social settings. Each is a moment where I decide, do I share who I am or do I not? At that time in my life, I naively thought coming out would be a one-and-done experience, but life has presented me with endless opportunities to come out to the people around me. In reality, I even came out to myself multiple times before I was finally ready to embrace and live my truth. I was still not dealing with my rape. Having no one to talk to when it happened and not knowing how to process it, I didn't, and just pretended it didn't exist. I pretended I didn't carry it with me every day. I pretended it wasn't in any way driving my bus or influencing my thinking or behavior. Skyborn, Episode 15, Refused, by K.G. Lockrams. When I walked into the house, my mother was standing at the top of the steps up to the living room. I had barely closed the door behind me. So, how long have you thought you were gay? It was an accusation framed as a question. A while now. It was quite a kick in my gut, she said. Because I'd known all day that she'd found my letter to Paul, and the way I sometimes knew things, I had my response prepared and rehearsed. Well, that's what you get for reading other people's mail. I walked up the staircase toward her. She was stunned by my response and didn't move. I stepped around her, went into the kitchen, and put my book bag on the table. I I thought it was a letter to your father, she said in her defense. His name was also Paul. I held her gaze. Does that give you the right to read a personal letter of mine? It's none of your damn business either way. My voice cracked when I said damn business. We were both surprised I'd said it. She because I'd never sworn at her before, and I because my anger and exhaustion gave me an unfamiliar courage. Did you leave it out hoping I'd read it? Leave it out? That's a stretch. We both know it was mixed in with the stacks of papers and notebooks on my desk. You had to search to find that letter. Caught in her lie, and surprised I had so quickly connected her question as I walked into the house with the fact that she'd read my letter, she went into her room and changed for work. I changed also, picked up a textbook, and sat on the living room sofa. She came out of her room and sat in a lazy boy recliner opposite me. So that's it? We're not going to discuss your problem? Just end of discussion? I closed the book, put it in my lap, and made eye contact with her. What do you want to know? She was caught off guard by my newfound directness. Normally I would have moved instantly to denial and begged forgiveness for whatever offense she thought I'd committed. 
Nothing, she spat and held up her hands, her palms facing me, occluding her face and severing our eye contact. I don't want to know anything. Then I guess that is the end of the discussion. She stood up, glared at me, then walked back to her room, calling out, I won't accept it if that's what you want. Well then, I guess the discussion is closed. I called back and focused on my book. She didn't say another word and left for work. I put the book down. My heart was racing. Later that night, Ray came over as planned. As I had thought, his relationship had been falling apart and finally imploded. They broke up last week, and we were going over to the apartment to take her bed back to her parents' house, where she had returned to finish out the semester. As we were driving to her apartment, I said, My mom and I had a major fight earlier. I may have to move out. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. Something seems to be in the air. We drove the hour plus to the apartment, mostly in silence, picked up the mattress, and headed back to our hometown. We were listening to U2's Rattle and Hum album on the truck's stereo. How'd you like to backpack across Canada next August? Ray asked me. Seriously? Yeah. You're about the only person on the planet who can tolerate me for an extended period of time. We laughed because it was true. It's something I've always wanted to do before I finish college, he concluded. Yeah, I mean, why not? Let's figure it out and make it happen. Really? He asked. Really? Well, all right. And he beat the palms of his hands against the steering wheel in rhythm with the song. We put the mattress on our parents' front porch. Ray and I were only a couple of weeks apart in age, and although still not 21, he always managed to get beer. He picked up two six-packs, and we headed back to my house. My mother was working the evening shift again. After a few beers, he asked, What was the fight about? With your mom. I took a long swallow from my beer and thought about the letter I'd started writing him before Thanksgiving. The letter I wanted to give him so he could know the real me and the way he had said I knew him when he was telling me about his car accident. The letter Dick had found that made him think Ray and I were lovers. The letter I denied existed. The letter that caused me to take all of my personal things home. The letter that was ultimately responsible for me having left my letter to Paul on my desk, in which I thanked him for making my being gay a little bit easier. I took a deep breath, looked down at the floor, and said, I think I'm gay. Man, he said and took a drink. He looked at me, silently inviting me to continue. I've been struggling with it for a really long time. I'm so tired of trying to be something I'm not. This semester has been unbelievably difficult. The way Susan and Sarah have been practically shoving Virginia and I together. Almost every week this semester they've asked me why I won't ask her out. She's nice enough, but why should I if I know there's no future? We both drank. And of course, Dick did find a letter in my desk. But I don't know where he got the idea about you and I being lovers. Was it a love letter to me? He asked. Not as such. And I finally looked him in the eyes. I started writing it after your car accident. That night you said I was the only one in your life who didn't give you shit for being you. And how you felt I really knew you. I felt by not telling you who I was, who I really was that I was somehow lying to you, and I hated lying, and... And you wanted me to know you too, he said. Yeah. We were quiet for a couple of minutes. Dude, that must have seemed super gay to a dick like Dick, he said. He's been making my life a living hell ever since. We drank. I'm really sorry I got you caught up in my shit, I said. It's been quite the semester, hasn't it? 
We clinked our beer bottles. You know who's going to be happy you're single? Who? Susan? Seriously? She's had her eyes on you ever since I introduced you. Every time you enter a room, she brightens up and tosses her hair. Huh. We were quiet for a while, barely paying attention to the movie in the VCR. I kind of like her too, he said. Really? You've hit it well. I was in a relationship. Oh yeah, right. Ray would get really amped when he drank, and he started moving around from one part of the room to another. He couldn't sit still. Both well on our way to being drunk, he put his beer down and crossed the room to stand in front of me. So if you're gay, I guess I shouldn't do this. And he fell forward, his face in mine, his arms straddling my head, his hands resting on the back of the sofa over my shoulders, and he began dry-humping my knee. Don't mess with fire, I said, and tackled him to the living room floor. We started wrestling. Hold still, you're like wrestling a greased pig, I said, as we both laughed. You want to see gay? I asked and went to plant a kiss on his cheek. Just as I was about to do it, he squirmed, and I ended up kissing him on the lips. It was nothing more than a peck. There was no romantic or sexual intent behind it. It was simply how we lined up when my kiss landed. Who's gay now? I asked. You are, he said and pushed me off him, both of us still laughing. He got us both beers and went back to watching movies and talking about nothing. He was originally going to sleep over in my sister's room in the basement, but as I got up to go to bed, he said he couldn't sleep in any bed but his own. Dude, you're too drunk to drive an hour back to school. I've driven drunker than this. I'll be fine, he said and left. I went to bed. As I was lying there, I thought he'd taken the news better than I expected he would, and I hoped he could handle it. We'd already made plans to room together for the spring semester, and now we had Canada to look forward to. So much for cramming for finals, I thought, as I passed out. The next morning, I had to be at the store before opening. All day, I couldn't stop thinking about what the fallout could be from my mother reading my letter to Paul. If she threw me out, where would I go? I was also angry she'd violated my privacy. I wasn't surprised, given our history. Just angry. And angry with myself for not doing more to hide the letter. But she had no reason to enter my room, let alone go through my things. It just hadn't occurred to me to take more precautions. The muscle under my right eye would not relax. When I got home, I wrote my mother a letter. I needed to set a boundary, and I wanted to stand up for myself. I left it on the kitchen table and headed back to campus to get some studying done. It read, Mom. First of all, if anyone has a right to be angry about something, it's me. You had no business reading that letter, regardless of who you thought it was to. Any pain you feel from reading it, you deserve. Second, I think you're overreacting. I'm not committed to anything. I believe it is a possibility that I am gay. Whether I am or not, I don't know. To me, it isn't important at this point in my life. Right now, all I'm worried about is finishing school and getting a job. If, in the future, I determine I am gay, you will either accept it or you won't. No in between. But let me tell you now, if I am and you don't accept it, you will drive me away and I will never make an attempt to reestablish a relationship with this family again. Of this you can be sure. I understand if you are confused and upset and hurt, but this is completely my problem, and you have no say in it. I don't consider it a problem at this point in my life, and wish you wouldn't either. And I signed it, YOUR SON, with SON in all caps. It was the boldest thing I'd ever communicated to her in my life. Sunday night after dinner, most of the pack got together in Susan and Sarah's room. Virginia ignored my presence. She and Jonah were both acting weird, and I wondered if he had told her what I'd shared with him over the summer. In fact, Susan and Sarah were also acting weird. Great, I thought. 
I guess Jonah let the cat out of the bag. Ray was just Ray, drinking and cracking wise. Finals came and went, and I didn't do well. I hadn't committed the time to study, which was unlike me, and I was distracted by what was going on at home between my mother and me. My grades going in were such that I passed my secondary ed courses despite finals, but I flunked calculus, which, given my major and the terms of my scholarship, was problematic. For all Joy's efforts tutoring me, I was too upside down in the class, and my poor performance on the finals sealed my fate. That same week, Ray found time to hang out with Susan and explore his feelings for her. Do you mind if I ask Susan out? He said to me one night. Dude, I told you I'm gay. Why would I mind? About that, are you sure? I mean, until a couple of years ago, I didn't know how to be around girls. And then a friend of mine broke it all down for me and it changed everything. I'm pretty sure. Well, you and Susan seem pretty close. If I didn't know better, I'd say you two were into each other. We are close. But no, I'm not into her that way. You have my blessing. Sheesh, I'm not asking her to marry me. By the end of the semester, they had plans to go out on a date before Christmas. Jonah, Susan, Sarah, and I got together in the dining hall for one last lunch that semester. They were all acting weird, uncomfortable in some way. Virginia is really upset with you, Sarah said to me. For what? When no one could offer a reason, I changed the subject. It was an awkward meal. When I got back to my room, Dick and Mark had already taken their things and gone. I'd always imagined I'd make great friends with my college roommates. I couldn't have been more wrong. I packed up my things and headed home for winter break. After I unpacked, I was supposed to turn around, head back, and help Ray move his things home. Thankfully, he called me just before I left and said that he had it under control. When I saw my mother, she didn't mention the letter she'd found in my room or the letter I'd written her. It was as if neither existed, and we slipped into coexistent denial for the run-up to Christmas. Since the break was a bit over a month long, I arranged to work 35 hours a week at the department store. All the seasonal sales floor roles had already been filled, so I took a gig as a janitor. I had the skills. Why not? It was soothing to be in the store before it opened, vacuuming, cleaning the bathrooms, stocking the sales counters with forms, tissue paper, and paper bags. They had music videos playing throughout the store, and I used to love watching David Bowie and Bing Crosby sing The Little Drummer Boy as a duet. The Wednesday before Christmas, Paul was back in town. After the musical, he'd taken a teaching position at a private high school about a five-hour drive away. He was staying with Michael and Howie. When I called their house, he answered. I'm surprised you got my message, he said. How do you mean? Aren't you returning my call? No, I didn't know you called. I was calling to see if you wanted to get together. I called you earlier today to do the same, and your mother answered. How'd that go? She was very cool toward me, but given she didn't give you the message, I think you have the answer to your question. So it's going to be like that, I thought. I'm spending tonight and tomorrow at my folks' place. Friday, I'm helping Wendy cook for her Christmas party. You're coming, right? Yep. She asked me to come over early and help you two set up. What are you doing for Christmas? Staying at your folks? I'll go over to exchange gifts in the morning, but I can only take so much time with them. I'm coming back here to have Christmas dinner with Michael and Howie. Oh, okay. I'll see you Friday then, I said and hung up. Ray and Susan were having their first date that night, so I called to wish him good luck. Take it slow, I said. What do you mean? You can be a bit of a dog. I don't think she's looking for something that isn't going to go somewhere. The stories he had shared with me about his prior sexual escapades were sometimes graphic. In particular, he loved having sex with a girl when she was having her period. 
He'd rent a motel room somewhere, take the girl over, and leave the sheets a bloody mess. It's spectacular, he once told me. I found it disturbing, but who was I to judge? What do you mean, he asked. She's not the motel type. And he knew exactly what I meant. He was quiet for a moment. So we're good, he asked. We're good. Have fun tonight. And we hung up. I wanted their date to go well just as much as I hoped it would be a flop. I didn't want to lose another friend to love. Also, given Susan's reaction to her brother's coming out, I wasn't sure where she was going to land when I did the same. I worried her reaction to the news could impact my relationship with Ray if they got serious. Christmas with my family was never fun. The only Lockham's family Christmas story that consistently made us laugh was the one about my brother, at the age of five or six, burning his penis on one of the Christmas tree lights out of curiosity. He managed to pull the tree down on himself as a result of his horror upon discovering how hot the bulb was on his tiny penis. We'd laugh and laugh. Our parents never had Christmas parties. I have a dim recollection of one drunken New Year's Eve party after my father had built the bar in the basement. It was never repeated. Our tradition was that each Christmas Eve, we'd go to the house of the gynecologist our mother had worked for and attend his party. His wife was in her mother's bridge club, and we grew up around their family. They had several children, and their Christmas tree was absolutely buried by gifts each year. I looked forward to their party in the same way I did the laborers' 4th of July party. At both events, our parents were cordial to each other, and everyone got along for appearances. Even though I knew it was make-believe, Those two events each year were the closest I came to feeling as if we were a happy family. All of which I say as context for how excited and grateful I was to be part of Wendy's Christmas party. Helping her set up made me feel grown up, valued, and seen. About 30 people attended, many of whom I knew from the theater and the junior college. It offered me a deeply needed sense of belonging. Saturday was Christmas Eve, and I still hadn't gotten anyone a gift. I was notorious for shopping the day before Christmas, but this year, my heart wasn't in it. My brother was the same pompous ass as ever. I no longer recognized my sister, since she'd begun her affair, and the tension between my mother and me was off the scale. That morning, she happened to mention that she'd seen a set of Norman Rockwell mugs in a catalog of a nearby department store. Rockwell was the only artist she admired other than her father. When I went to get them, there were three sets of four, each with different artwork. I got her the entire collection and a wooden wall rack to hold them, then found emotionally neutral presents for my siblings and called it a day. I was wrapping presents in my bedroom before we left for the party. My sister had come down to spend Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with us. I could hear her and my mother talking in the kitchen. My brother was noncommittal as ever. He'd usually just blow in for the holiday meal. I came out of my room and walked into the kitchen as my sister was putting something away in the refrigerator. All I could see was her hair and her shoulders. When she closed the door, I was shocked. She'd lost so much weight. Too much weight. The thing about my sister and I was that I saw her. I'd always seen her. Aside from being blamed for shoving her down the basement steps while eating breakfast one morning, and pulling her off a diving board at a 4th of July party, which led to her splitting her lip open when I was in middle school, I was her most neutral force in the family. As kids, we used to do ceramics together. We Christmas caroled together. We sold Girl Scout cookies and fruit for the marching band together. We played in community bands together. There was even a time when she was my protector against the world at large. The winter after I refused to blow the kid who had propositioned me at the ice cream truck, he approached me again at the local ice skating pond. My sister saw I was in trouble and intervened. 
She threatened to knock him through the ice with such grit he left the pond in fear of her. We had our ups and downs, but she was the only one in my family with whom I came close to forming a meaningful bond. The abuse she received from our father and brother drove her to isolation, which weakened that bond. Occasionally, we'd consciously invest time and energy to restore it, and it would reform quickly enough, but then there'd be some subsequent interruption, and we'd lose it again. What are you looking at? she asked. You. You've lost so much weight. Thank you, she beamed. I hadn't offered it as a compliment, but rather a concern. Are you okay? Of course I am, she snapped and went into the living room. I looked at our mother, the nurse, hoping to find some support for my concern for what was obviously a dramatic and rapid weight loss. Why do you always have to make trouble, she said and followed my sister. Christmas Day was largely uneventful. I remember two standouts. The mugs I'd bought my mother were a surprising hit. She was overjoyed that I'd gotten her the entire set and a display rack. She cried when she finished unwrapping them all. And my sister had gotten me a beautiful, handmade, heavy wool sweater. The body was charcoal, and it had random snowflakes throughout the pattern with purple, red, and green accents. It was just my style, and I loved it. My brother decided to grace us with his presence just in time for dinner, and it was the same story. He droned on with imagined details from his revisionist history of his youth and education. He and my sister got into an argument over something or other. He tried talking positively about our father. We all instantly shut him down, and they started recalling various traumatizing events Dad had unleashed on one or all of us. It was the same thing, holiday after holiday, since our parents had divorced. I had split the main phone line and added an extension to my bedroom. When everyone else had gone into the living room after dinner, I went to my room and called Michael to wish him Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, someone answered. Hi, Paul. Merry Christmas, I said. We made small talk for a few minutes. I was calling to wish Michael a Merry Christmas. Hold on, he said and put the phone down. What can I do for you? Howie said when he picked up the phone. Hi, Merry Christmas. Can I talk to Michael? Well, he's kind of busy stuffing his face right now, so if you could call back in an hour or so. I was crushed. Michael was always telling me how wonderful I was, how great and bad I was, how much he loved me, but he couldn't be bothered to take ten seconds and wish me Merry Christmas. No, I'm going out, I lied. I'll call later in the week, and I hung up. Things had been cooling between us. I knew, considering his situation, I shouldn't have expected anything more than sex from our relationship, but I'd gotten my heart involved. I didn't know what the hell I was doing or how to navigate the situation. That damn clenching began under my eye. It was a constant physical reminder of how screwed up everything was. A couple days after Christmas, I caught up with Ray. I can't believe how easy it is to be with Susan, he said. We've already been out twice. After we'd finished bowling, we stayed out till two in the morning, just talking. That's great, I lied. He and I were supposed to do something that night, and I could tell where this was going. About tonight. Can I get a rain check? I need to take a night off. Sure, no problem. I felt instantly insecure. It was starting. Are you seeing Michael? No, I called to wish him a Merry Christmas, but he was too busy eating to talk to me. That bastard, he said supportively. It's okay. Things are weird between us. I mean, what am I supposed to expect? The guy's in a relationship, and I'm just... Sex, he said, and there's nothing wrong with sex with no attachments. Except I wanted attachments. Are we still going to Violet's for New Year's Eve? I asked. 
Violet was one of our pack friends from college. Yeah, I thought you, me, and Susan could ride over together. Great, I thought. We hadn't done anything alone since the day he took his ex-girlfriend's mattress to her parents' house. Sounds good, I said, and we hung up. I was confused by my feelings about Ray and Susan. I was happy, jealous, hurt, scared, and angry all at the same time. He took an active interest in my being gay and was doing his best to pivot with my revelation. I wanted him to be happy, but I didn't know where my conflicting emotions were coming from. I used to think all of my problems would be solved by finally owning up to the truth I knew in fifth grade when I looked up the word faggot. I thought, if I could only come out, all the stress I carried would fall away. I was beginning to realize I was wrong. I'd come out to Elroy, Jonah, Ginger, Sarah, and Ray. I'd even found a man I trusted to explore the physical side of being gay with, but I didn't feel any better about myself or my situation. I called Carrie next. Robert decided he didn't like living in the U.S. after all, and they decided to move to Scotland by the end of the year. My feelings for her were so complex. If ever there was a girl that would have been the one for me, it was her. We spent time so easily together after we'd figured out we weren't meant to be together romantically. We said our goodbyes, me holding back tears in the face of her joy and happiness, and we hung up. I felt so disconnected from myself, and I cried for reasons I didn't even comprehend. In the end, Ray, Susan, Jonah, and I carpooled to Violet's house for her New Year's Eve party. She lived as far away from our town as the campus, but in the opposite direction. Everyone had a blast. Before midnight, Ray grabbed me in a bottle of Jack Daniels. Let's go for a walk, he said. Violet lived in an upscale neighborhood that at the time was quiet and dark. It was a cool night, lit by a bright half-moon and the Christmas decorations in people's yards and on their houses. Ray walked beside me and put his right hand in the back right pocket of my jeans to support himself as we wobbled down the center of her street. I put my left arm over his shoulder. I'm still doing coke, he said and took a swig from the bottle and handed it back to me. I said nothing, took a swig, and handed it back. I do okay until I'm with my brother. Swig and swap. I remain silent. And the thing that worries me is, I can't stop once I get started. Again, we swapped the bottle between us, each having a drink. I have to have more, and more, and more, he said, sounding desperate and scared. I thought back to the night he ended up in the hospital, and wondered if maybe it was from an overdose, and not from some stranger having put something in his drink. Had he been out with his brother that night? You're still the only person who's ever fully accepted me. I'm so glad we've become friends, he said. I feel the same way. My arm began to fall asleep on his shoulder, and I tried several times to put my hand in the back left pocket of his jeans to mirror him, but his leather jacket was just long enough I couldn't find the opening. I put my arm around his waist instead. Look, I'm not going to judge you, so I'll just say I'm here for you when and if you want to try and work on that. And as for our friendship, you're the only friend I've told I'm gay who actually tries to take an interest in what that's like for me, and I love you for that. We each took another swig. Now let's go back, I said. This is really hitting me. We staggered back to Violet's house, supporting one another along the way. Everyone had gathered around the TV, waiting for the ball to drop in Times Square to mark the start of the new year. Afterward, anyone sober enough to drive left for home. It was mostly the core pack from college now, and Violet dropped the bomb on us that her parents weren't letting her return for the spring semester. I had gone to her dorm room one night that fall to tell her I thought I might be gay. 
She was on the girls' soccer team, and before I could tell her my news, she told me she was being harassed by some of her teammates. She said she'd been struggling with the fact that some of the girls on the team were lesbians. I was a bit surprised, given I assumed she was too when I first met her. She wore no makeup, had no interest in doing her hair, dressed for the gym or the field every day, and was kind of, well, butch. She said they'd been saying lewd things to her, and she'd been hit on more than once. She confided to me that it made her deeply uncomfortable. I admired Violet. After she opened up to me about what she was dealing with, for a brief time, I convinced myself I had a crush on her. I'm not sure how I got from going to her room to tell her I was gay to leaving with a crush, but there I was. I kept my original intent for my visit that night to myself. I didn't realize it was so bad her parents wouldn't let her come back in the spring. The party had wound down, and Jonah, Ray, Susan, and I ended up sprawled out on an L-shaped sectional sofa. I was in the crook of the L. Jonah was to my left on the short end. Susan was to my right, and Ray was passed out on her right. My belief that my silence about being gay was equivalent to lying, combined with entirely too much alcohol, compelled me to apologize to Jonah for coming out to him that night in the parking lot at Kmart. I wanted to entrust you with something real and honest about me, I began. And all I did was saddle you with a secret you've had to carry for me all semester. My New Year's resolution had been honesty, and once the floodgates were opened, I told him my story. I also told him I'd had a crush on him since we'd met in the all-county band program. I told him how long I'd been struggling with trying to figure out my sexuality. I told him how Dick had made my life miserable that fall. And I told him how uncomfortable it was for me that Susan and Sarah kept trying to push Virginia and I together. All the while, oblivious to the fact that Susan was sitting right next to me, listening to the entire exchange with fresh ears. Ray and Susan were now officially dating, and I hadn't gotten a single call from him since. I always seemed to be the one making the call, and it made me jealous. It was Dan and Kathy all over again, only faster. I was instantly insecure about the possibility of losing them as friends, especially given I'd just lost Carrie to a man in another country. I understood Ray wanting to spend more time with Susan, but it came at the cost of the time we spent together. I couldn't reconcile my emotions or wrap my head around my jealousy. I didn't know what to do. Ray wanting to spend time with a girl he was dating was perfectly normal, but I felt my feelings of loss were too. The timing of it was bound up with my coming out and the guilt and shame I carried on that front, which added a layer of confusion for me. I called Jonah a couple of times, but he didn't return my calls. Or my mother wasn't giving me the messages. I had no way of telling. I had called Violet, same result. Only I figured if a girl had called me, my mother would have most certainly passed that message along. Although I felt Virginia had dug her own hole, and I wasn't much inclined to help her out of it, I called her too. Nothing. I realized I hadn't heard from any of them since New Year's Eve. I began thinking Violet may be struggling with her own battle around her sexual identity, and desperate to connect, I wrote her a letter. It covered my confusion around my sexuality, starting with Diane, my freshman year of high school, included the happier parts of Pip, included a sanitized version of my relationship with Michael, and ended with my drunken disclosure on the sectional sofa at her house on New Year's Eve. I mailed the letter. The following day, the Christmas card I had sent Virginia was returned to my house by the mailman with one word written on the front of it in her perfect handwriting, refused. My heart dropped and my cheek clenched. Winter break was almost over and I had still not heard back from Violet regarding my calls or letter. Virginia had cut the cord on any communication between us. I hadn't heard a peep out of Jonah 
I began thinking the only reason I occasionally saw Susan was because she and Ray were dating and I was his best friend. I felt wholly rejected by the people I had thought of as my closest friends just weeks earlier. I asked Paul if I could come see his new place. I made the long drive to see him the last full weekend before having to move back into the dorms for spring semester. He had rented an apartment from a gay couple who ran a funeral home. It was a lovely place, and despite the fact it was attached to a building centered on death, it had a warm and peaceful energy. It was a short and uneventful visit. He introduced me to Hawaiian pizza, and I crashed both nights on his pull-out bed from this end-up furniture. It was good to spend time with him. I trusted him and his advice, but more importantly, we had clearly defined boundaries. I spent no energy wondering about or trying to interpret his comments or actions. I was always able to relax in his company. Let's go into town. I want to show you around, Paul said the morning I was heading home. It had a bit of an artist colony vibe. There was a coffee shop, a bakery, several small restaurants, a restored movie theater, and other stores. Let's pop in here. I want to buy a postcard, I said. Ooh, old school, Paul said and followed me in. I bought the first card I found in a stamp. Let's get coffee, I said. While sitting in the small shop, I took out the postcard. Do you have a pen? I asked Paul. Dear Virginia, I wrote, it makes no sense for you to refuse my calls and my mail if I don't know why you're upset. Kit. Paul was reading my note as I wrote it. You sure you want to send that? I'm sure she can't refuse it. As we walked back to his place, I dropped it in a mailbox. Sarah's parents' house was halfway between my home and Paul's. I decided to stop in and see if she was home. She came outside, and we walked around the property. What's going on with Virginia? She's refusing my calls and my mail. I don't understand why she's taking the fact I'm not into her so much to heart. I've been clear from the start. I'm sure I can't say. That was very formal, I thought. Can't or won't, I asked. She remained silent. I stopped walking. Why are you being so weird? I asked. She wouldn't look at me and remained silent then suddenly turned toward me and said, Everyone is upset with you because you made a pass at Ray. I was shocked and embarrassed to hear this. Nothing had happened between us. I don't even have romantic or sexual feelings for him. But Sarah had no reason to make something like this up. How could this be? I began replaying every moment I could think of with Ray, and I couldn't remember doing anything remotely like making a pass at him. My passes, historically, weren't subtle. If I'd hit on Ray... Why couldn't I remember? I can't believe he didn't tell me, I said. He realized you were drunk and was hoping you would either not remember or pretend that you didn't. Didn't what? Make a pass or remember? Remember. I took what she was saying as truth, despite my lack of recall. I was racked with another wave of shame and embarrassment. I felt sick to my stomach. Not only for having made a pass at Ray, but also for not remembering, and for Ray telling other people, all while I had no idea. I was embarrassed and stunned into silence. I remembered wrestling with him that night, but that was something my straight guy friends did. Lance and I used to wrestle all the time, so I assumed it was a normal straight guy thing to do. All I could come up with was wrestling with him and him going home, hours later, to sleep in his own bed. If he'd felt hit on or uncomfortable, why would he have stayed so long? Well, did you? she asked. No, at least I don't think so. Kit, are you telling me the truth? I was crushed. She thought I may have been lying to her. I had spent so much energy trying to be honest with myself and with my friends. Suddenly everyone's silence made sense. 
was this why Ray didn't wait for me to move his things the night I came out to him? Was this why Violet never responded to my letter and why Virginia was refusing my mail and calls? Was this why I hadn't heard anything from Jonah? The night you told him you were gay, he drove all the way back to campus, drunk, and showed up at our dorm room. He said you'd made a pass at him and described it to us in detail. I didn't understand what was happening. There's also what you did to him New Year's Eve, she offered as additional evidence of my crime. What did I do to him New Year's Eve? I began replying the night in my memory. Was it that I'd put my arm around his waist? That was completely innocent, and his hand was in my back pocket at the time. I knew, in light of the accusation she was making, she would not believe me, so I said nothing. I was stuck in my shame and embarrassment. Ray wouldn't make something like this up, I thought. Something must have happened. Why can't I remember? Susan thinks you're trying to keep them apart. She told me you want Ray to spend as much time with you as he does with her. Of course I do. He's my best friend. She sees you as competition. I realized that was exactly how I saw her, as competition. I'd gone from doing something with Ray most every night to barely seeing him. Susan had once told me to let her know if she was monopolizing Ray's time. She'd also told me that she used to hate it when her girlfriends would start seeing someone for the same reasons I was struggling. It ate into their time together. She shared how abandoned she'd feel when they suddenly had no time for her. I didn't know how to respond because of my poor boundaries and shame about being gay. If I were straight, no one would have thought twice about me wanting to spend time with my best friend. But because I had been coming out to them, intentionally and drunkenly, and because I'd evidently made multiple passes at him, Everyone was applying a negative filter to my words and actions. Because I carried all the guilt and responsibility for my traumas on my shoulders. Because I had no healthy sense of individuality. Because I'd always been told what to think and what to believe. My reaction was to believe their version for my motivations over my own reality. Why do you have such a problem with them dating? I don't. And I didn't have a problem with them dating. I was having a problem with how little time I got to spend with Ray. I was afraid my role as confidant and buddy was being replaced by Susan. I was afraid of being reduced to drinking buddy and nothing more. And at the core of it, I felt abandoned. Clearly they'd all been talking with one another, spreading the information, speculating about my motivations. I left Sarah's house and headed home, desperate to set the record straight with Ray. At this point, I'd given up on Virginia. Our dynamic had become a train wreck and I was not its conductor. As for Violet, I had made an effort to be supportive and explain my history and actions, and beyond that, what could I do? I was disgusted with myself at the idea that I'd crossed some line with Ray. When I got home, I tried to reach him, but he wasn't around. It was going to be an awkward return to the dorms that Saturday. The next day, I was playing solitaire at the kitchen table. My mother came in sat down across from me and said, I had girlfriends that I was very close to when I was your age. I didn't think I was gay. Her approach felt dismissive and belittling. I'd had relationships with two men now, one of whom raped me. Not that she knew. It's more than that, I said. I'm not confused about a close friendship with another guy. She tried again. When my best friend moved in with me, we shared a bed for most of our senior year. I never felt I was gay then either. Because you weren't gay. And if you were, and you loved her, you would have felt differently. You're just confused. I'm not confused. But how do you know? No son of mine would be gay. Something snapped. I closed my eyes and blurted out, 
I know because I've had sex with men. It was terrifying and freeing to say. I opened my eyes. Hers were wide, and her lips closed tightly in a flat, quivering line. I slid my left hand across the table, offering it to her palm up. And I liked it. That's how I know. She refused my outstretched hand, began to cry, stood up from the table, and went into her bedroom. I left the house, got in my car, and drove away, not knowing where to go. I ended up at Ginger's house. It was early in the evening and she was watching Jeopardy. I brought her up to speed. She still didn't know about my having been raped. My choice to withhold that event from her had nothing to do with her. Of all of my friends, I had no doubt she would have handled it best. But I could barely think about it, let alone talk about it. Kit, I say this with love. You make some incredibly self-destructive choices. I was taken off guard. How so? How did you end up with your current car? My grandmother bought it for me. After you totaled yours, while out joyriding and drinking, if I'm not mistaken, I had two beers over a couple of hours. Still, not good thinking. Then you decide you're ready to come out, but you still talk about having feelings for girls sometimes. How is that self-destructive? I know how you feel about bisexuality, she said. I felt bisexuals were whores who slept with whoever whenever they could and selfishly played both sides of the street. But you're looking at it in the wrong way. How do you mean? It seems to me you're so quick to conclude you're gay, but have you ever considered monogamy in the bisexuality equation? It's possible you could fall in love with someone of either sex and have a long-term monogamous relationship. I honestly had never considered that, but only because I knew in my heart, even though I was sometimes emotionally attracted to a girl, Physically, I had only ever been interested in having sex with guys. Still, Ginger's words gave my desperation something to cling to. I wanted to unring the bell I'd just rung with my mother, out of sheer self-preservation, if for no other reason. Ginger continued, You've said many times this scholarship is your only way to get a four-year degree, but from what you say, you're spending all of your time on the weekends either having sex with Michael or drinking with Ray and your friends. And at the end of the semester, you didn't pass any of your math courses. That was a hard mirror to look into, but it reflected a number of truths. I don't say this to tear you down, just to shake you loose. You seem stuck. She was sitting on the sofa, and I was next to her in a chair. She held out her hand, and I took it. I don't want to see you lose something you've so often said is important to you. We parted company on good terms. As I headed home, two thoughts competed for my attention. Could it be I am bisexual? And am I sabotaging my life? It was two days to move in day, and Ray and I still hadn't talked about the elephant in the room. As far as I knew, he didn't know Sarah and I had spoken, or that I'd heard he believed I'd made multiple passes at him. I still didn't understand how I didn't recall hitting on him. All the times we'd been drunk or stoned together and nothing ever happened. The only thing that was different now was that he knew I was gay. The only thing that had changed was context. I finally reached him and we agreed to meet at my place, since my mother was working second shift again. I decided to let him read my journal. I'd written most every day from the day I told him about my fight with my mother to the present. I reasoned he'd be able to read for himself that I had no alternative motives. I had written all about the night I came out to him, our New Year's Eve walk, my confusion about everyone shutting me out, 
and meeting with Sarah at her house. It seemed my best chance to clear things up with him before we moved in together. Hey, I said when I answered the door. Hey, Ray said back. Come on in. It was the first time he'd ever shown up at my house without beer. We went up to the living room and sat down. Sarah told me you think I made a pass at you the night I came out, and that you drove all the way back to campus because you were so freaked out. I wasn't freaked out. I just didn't understand what happened or what to do about it. Here, I said, and handed him a black and white composition book. Is that your journal? Yes. Start reading at the post-it note. I got up and headed for the kitchen. Do you want a beer? Sure. I brought him his beer and returned to the kitchen so he could read in privacy. About a half an hour or so later, he came and found me. I feel like such an idiot. I thought you were seriously trying to kiss me. I'd forgotten all about dry humping you first. I remember now. It makes a lot more sense. I don't lust after your body, Ray. You're skinny as hell and you have no ass to speak of. He chuckled. And speaking of asses, what's that about New Year's Eve, I asked. Dude, I was so drunk before we even started that walk, all I remember was thinking you were trying to grab my ass. You have no ass, I reminded him. I do tend to put my hand in your back pocket a lot, don't I? Only when you're drunk or stoned, but yeah, you may want to think about that, I said. He laughed. And then we started dissecting everything that had gone south with the group. I'm sorry, he said. This past month must have really sucked for you. It really did. But mostly I felt bad that you thought I'd made passes at you and you didn't feel you could talk to me about it. I really fucked up, he said. You really did. But we can figure it out together. I stood up, and we gave each other a big bear hug. Epilogue Reconnecting to this time was surprisingly difficult. I cringed as I read my first-person account of flailing my way toward my authentic self. I felt the heat of shame, embarrassment, regret, sorrow, and eventually I found some grace for my younger self. I was reminded of how non-existent my personal boundaries were, how I had no idea about the distinctions between platonic and romantic love. My father and brother had taken those from me. I had no insight at the time that I was indeed making destructive choices and sabotaging my ability to succeed. Ginger tried to show me, but I wasn't ready or able to take it in. I was too much in the depths of it all to have any perspective. Regarding my brother, his penis, and the Christmas tree light, there was nothing funny about that story. I included it because it showed the callous and abusive culture my parents had fostered. To laugh at your own young child as he engaged in an act of curiosity that ended in pain, confusion, and fear. Such was my family's culture. I have a newfound empathy for that young child. The journey of my friendship with Carrie extended from mixed messages about potential romance to the death of any hope that I had I was heterosexual. I knew in my soul she was making a mistake and there was nothing I could do to stop or help her, but she was doing what she thought was right for her and my motivations at the time were unclear and bound up with the guilt and shame I had around my sexuality. The letter I wrote to Violet was an adolescent shitshow of projection, deflection, guilt, and shame. I transcribed it into my journal before mailing it to her. It has been, so far, one of the hardest things I've read in my journal. Mostly because I'd forgotten all about it, and what I did remember, I'd cast myself in a much more positive light. It was as raw and earnest as it was wholly inappropriate. 
At the time, I was devastated after having bared my soul to her like that, only to be ignored. Reading it again, 34 years later, I can say, I wouldn't have even known what to do with all the wounds and traumas I'd put in it, especially if I wasn't going to see that person again. I feel such empathy for that version of myself who was so hurt and so raw and so lost. And I feel empathy for Violet as well. I emotionally vomited all over her. I was not the hero in our story. The way I had equated my maintaining a sense of privacy about my sexuality with lying was a disservice to myself. My sense of privacy had been stripped away by both my parents. I was raised to believe that keeping something private was the same as to lie or withhold. Thankfully, I had a strong enough sense of self-preservation to withhold some things. People were being beaten or killed for being gay. Nonetheless, at that time, I believed I was a liar, simply for having a boundary. I felt I owed everyone around me full and complete access to any and all parts of myself. I was such a pleaser. I tried to mold myself into whatever someone needed me to be. I developed feelings for anyone who expressed the slightest interest in me, male or female. Not to be false, but to please. It's why I vacillated back and forth between what I knew to be my truth, that I was gay, and that perhaps I wasn't, to please and to be accepted by others. I'm sure my outward-facing self at the time was as confusing to my friends as my inward-facing self was to me. It's why I never fully shut down the Virginia issue. It's why I talked myself into thinking I had feelings for Violet. It's what Ray saw when he thought I had feelings for Susan. And it's why, for a time, I thought I had feelings for Sarah, who wanted to find love. I tried to be to everyone exactly what they needed, rather than simply being myself, or being what I needed. Because I was raised not to have any needs. I didn't matter. I was unlovable. The only needs that mattered were those of others. This messaging was rooted in the trauma I had experienced and strengthened by the dysfunction in my home where I was raised to believe my own observations and feelings did not matter. They were replaced with what I was told to feel and believe. And then I was raped. And once again made to feel as if I existed solely for the pleasure of someone else. I was a raw nerve wanting only to please and to be seen, accepted, and loved. I didn't yet love myself. I rediscovered in my journal how I used to measure the value of friendship by my willingness to die for said friend. I wrote repeatedly that I would die for Ray, that I would have died for Dan. This went all the way back to Bobby. I had forgotten how little value I placed on my own life. My desperate desire to be seen, accepted, and loved bled into every aspect of my relationships. The way those events synced up with my journey of figuring out my sexuality made everything messier and more convoluted. Remember, no is a full sentence. You are not obligated to share anything personal with someone, even when asked. And withholding intimate information about yourself is within your rights. Be kind to yourself as you examine the shame you carry in your heart. You may no longer be the same person, Your circumstances may have improved. Maybe you're unfairly expecting an earlier version of yourself to have used tools you have now that weren't at your disposal then. We can always develop the tools we need that we don't yet possess. Do the work. Keep rising. You are not broken.